Well, thank you, Chris, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Now, before we start, I would uh, like to acknowledge those who have given their images freely available for us to use, and a uh, very big thank you to you for generosity. We are living in incredible times at the moment. The whole world has become paralysed with the COVID-19 pandemic. Laws are changing by the day, world borders are closing, and even our own state borders are closed at the moment. I'm giving this talk to you from my home rather than from our hall. We are looking at a situation never before seen in most of our lifetimes. People are asking, will this all end? How will it all end? When will it all end? People are very frightened about what is happening. I'd just like to play for you a couple of clips from two radio interviews that I heard on the ABC on Thursday. Rachel Tucker is the Executive Officer at the Australian Child Care Alliance in WA. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. I'm great to be talking to you, Rochelle. Tell us what's happening. Uh, this week in particular, after the announcement from the Prime Minister on Sunday night, there was a mass, mass withdrawal of children across the sector throughout Australia. So what, they're withdrawing their children from the service because they're scared their children will become infected with the virus? I think all sorts of reasons. People are scared. So what is it like to be a health worker on the front line dealing with this rapidly expanding crisis? Dr Stephen Parnas is an emergency physician. He is now in self-isolation at home after coming into contact with a confirmed COVID-19 case. Dr Parnas is a former vice president of the AMA. How do you feel at a time when uh, there's increased numbers of people with this turning up in hospital? You work in emergency. It must be horrible. It's extremely frustrating. I have to say, like uh, so many of my colleagues, uh, and I've been a doctor 28 years, you go to work uh, with a level of fear, I have to say. We can see from just those two short sound grabs that people are frightened. People are generally frightened on what's happening around the world. I was in an article that was written 15 years ago, and it's very interesting to read. I have an extract from that article, and in light of what we're experiencing today, I think you'll find it very interesting as well. The writer says in November 2005, he says, there is now another form of catastrophe that threatens the world, one with the potential to be much worse than any earthquake or hurricane. It is the threat of an influenza epidemic and of a particularly lethal form of the disease. Experts vary in their assessments on how likely it is that such an epidemic will occur in the near future, how many people it will kill, but it seems to be generally agreed that there will be sooner or later. Major flu epidemics or pandemics have occurred before, notably in 1918, where it is estimated that 40 million or more people died. Some strains of the flu are more lethal than others. One that threatened us is considered to be more lethal of a more lethal kind. It is better treatments today offer greater chances of surviving the attack. But the ease with which travel makes it easier for it to spread quickly. He says he doesn't want to dwell just on those ones. He says the most striking thing I have read on the subject of a flu epidemic 
concerns the economic threat it would pose if it were widespread. A major region, reason for this is the importance which the leisure and tourist industries have for many nations today. In a flu epidemic, these industries would virtually dry up, people being afraid to meet with others or to travel and perhaps even being forbidden to do so. Who would want to attend a major sporting event or go on a long-haul flight if there is a prospect of sitting next to someone with a deadly virus? Furthermore, there is already a slump in retail spending and a flu epidemic would cause people to postpone all but essential purposes. All this could cause widespread job losses and business failures. That's describing exactly what we are seeing today. Remember, this was written 15 years ago. Now, as Bible students, we watch these world events around us and we're concerned, but we're not frightened. As we see, what we see is Bible prophecy happening before our eyes. Jesus foretold that just before his second coming to the earth, things like we are witnessing would happen. Gospel of Luke, at chapter 21, Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman army. In verse 23, he says this, However, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you are to understand that she is about to be destroyed. There will be great distress in the land and judgment on the people. Some will fall by the edge of the sword. Others will be carried into all the countries of the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the nations until the age of the nations has run its course. Now we know Jerusalem was destroyed in 1870 when the Jewish nation ceased to exist. Jerusalem was controlled by various nations over the years. Note what Jesus says here. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the nations until the age of the nations has run its course. And this happened in 1948, and the Jewish people became a nation of Israel once more. And again in 1967, when they finally took control of all of Jerusalem, and it was under Jewish control again after some 1900 years of foreign power control. But it's what Jesus says after this that we're interested in, because the events he describes follows this 1948. He says further down in Luke 21, there'll be signs in the sun, moon and stars and on the earth, nations will be in anxiety and bewilderment, sound of the surge of the sea. People faint with fear at the prospect of what is overtaking the world. The powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man, which is a title of Jesus Christ, coming in a cloud with tremendous power and glory. When these things start to happen, stand up, hold up your heads high, because you are about to be liberated. Describing exactly what we are seeing today. Fear all over the world about the unknown. And this happens just before the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. When exactly his return will happen, we don't know. The one thing we do know is that the Bible says it will happen. But can we trust what the Bible says to be true? Can we trust anything the Bible says? After all, it's a book that was written thousands of years ago. Well, for the rest of the afternoon, we're going to show you that we can trust the Bible. 
we will show you that it is a very accurate book and can give us a lot of comfort and hope in the troubling and fearful times we are experiencing today. So let's have a look at some Bible facts. There are 66 books written in the entire Bible. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors. The Old Testament was written over a period of some 1500 to 1900 years, whilst the New Testament was written over a period of some 50 to 75 years. Despite the massive year gap and the time taken to write the Bible, there is one central message that goes from Genesis to Revelation. We'll have a look at what that message is a little bit later on. Now, the Bible is consistent. There are no contradictions in the Bible. People claim to find contradiction. But to find a contradiction in the Bible, you need to take a verse out of the context that is written in to do so. When looking at the Bible as a whole, we understand that it's t in its teachings, there are no contradictions in the Bible. And that's because whilst there are many writers of the Bible, there is only one author, God himself. We are told that by one of the writers of the Bible, the Apostle Paul. He wrote to a disciple of Jesus and he said this. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, he says, All scripture, or all the Bible, is God-breathed. And it is valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living. Thus, anyone who belongs to God may be fully equipped for every good work. But can we rely on the Bible? This is an author who wrote something. How do we know that what he is saying is correct? Well, we need to have a look at the Bible and compare it with what it says with outside sources. And so we'll have a look at the Bible and archaeology. Now, the Bible records a feast given by a king in ancient Babylon just before it was conquered by the Medes and the Persians in about 539 BC. That king was Belshazzar. That event is described for us in Daniel chapter 5. However, all archaeological records found showed that Nabonidus was king and no mention was ever made of Belshazzar until 19. So 1854. In 1854, four clay tablets were found from ancient Ur. They're called the Nabonidus cylinders. And one of those cylinders contained a prayer of King Nabonidus, the moon god, for his son. And the translation of that prayer is as follows. As for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great godhead and grant me as a present a lifelong of days. And as for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring, instill reverence in your great Godhead heart, and may he not commit any cultic mistake. May he be sated with a life of plenty. And there we have, literally written in stone, that Belshazzar existed, and that the Bible was accurate in its description that he was at one stage ruling in Babylon. 
over hundreds of years, there was a, a the nation the nation of the Hittites were only mentioned in the Bible, and they were thought not to have existed. In 1834, the first Hittite ruins, the Lion Gate, were discovered but not identified. And there we have a photo of the ruins of the Lion Gate into the entering of one of the major cities. In 1887, some tablets were found in Egypt that spoke of the land of Hatti. Between 1905 and 1912, archaeologist Hugo Winkler found over 10,000 clay tablets which described a powerful nation called Hittites. And we can see on that map there, the green heavy line is the border of the Hittite nation. See, it was covered a quite a large area of the then known world at the time. And the darker shaded outside area is the area of borders, uh, land under their control, outside of their own borders. The Bible speaks of people from the land of Hittite. Uh, Abraham brought a field from Ephron the Hittite. A man called Esau married three Hittite wives. And two of King David's mighty men, King David was a of ancient Israel, Uriah and Ahimelech were Hittites. So again, we see the Bible has proved to be completely accurate about the people it described. William Mitchell Ramsey was a British archaeologist and he was also an atheist. He believed that the book of Acts, written by Luke, was a fraud. He believed it was the weakest spot in the entire New Testament and could not be proved by one who went to places that were mentioned there. He spent about 15 years in the Middle East and Asia, retracing the story of Luke in the book of Acts. His conclusion greatly upset the sceptics of the Bible and the contemporary intellectual world. His statement on Luke's account, the Gospel of Luke, he said it showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority on the facts of the Aegean world and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. He also stated that you could press the words of Luke to a degree beyond any other historian. Now that was coming from a sceptic who was an atheist. As we see there, he converted to Christianity because of the evidence of his explorations and discovery. It again shows the accuracy of the Bible. It shows the accuracy of the Bible has been vindicated. And in turn, a man like that, who was an atheist and a sceptic, is a believer. Purely through following the written account of Luke and checking it out according to the facts that he finds on the ground. Is there anything else that we can look at other than archaeology? Because we could spend all night on archaeology, but there are other things we can look at to show us that the Bible is accurate and can be believed. So we'll have a look at the Bible and science. This is uh, quite relevant for us today. In the 1840s, a doctor named Ignaz Samowitz was concerned about the amounts of death in the hospital he worked at. He 
thought the doctors did autopsies, then examined patients without washing their hands. He introduced hand washing, and the amount of deaths fell dramatically. Surprise, surprise. Now, we're being told to do that today with the COVID-19 pandemic. Best thing to do is wash with soap and water. But God instituted the concept of washing to become clean over 3,000 years before man discovered it. The book of Leviticus, in chapter 14, verse 8 to 9, God says this, He who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water. He shall be clean. But after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. And on a seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair. Then he shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. So we can see God instituted not only a lesson for us to learn that we need to be spiritually clean in God's presence, but also a very good hygiene lesson. And you notice what it says about the middle of that. He can come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. And then we have social distancing practiced some 3,500 years ago. Now, social distancing was also practiced in the time of Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 12 to 13, we see Jesus enters a certain village, and there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. We see even in the times of Jesus, social distancing was practiced because they understood that if you contact with people, you could pass on diseases. And so the Bible shows us that washing and social distancing are things that God instituted way before man ever thought of them himself. Now, the ocean floor is something that man loves to do, to explore and discover. Before the 1900s, when we started to explore the ocean floor, we really did not know what it looked like. Most believed at that time that it uh, was relatively flat and featureless. Since then, we have discovered that it has very high mountains and very deep trenches. What does the Bible say concerning the ocean floor? We may probably have heard of the story of Jonah. And Jonah was a man who ran away from God and God sent a terrible storm. When he was discovered, Jonah told the men to throw him overboard and the storm was calm. But Jonah describes this concerning his descent into the ocean floor after he was thrown overboard. He says, I was almost drowned by the swirling waters that surrounded me. Seaweed had wrapped around my head. I had sunk down below the underwater mountains. I knew that forever I would be a prisoner there. The book of Samuel in 2 Samuel 22 verse 16 also talks about the channels of the sea appearing at the wrath of God. Now, how did the writers of the Bible know that there were mountains and trenches or channels in the sea over 2,000 
500 years before we found them. Because God wrote the Bible and his word is true and accurate. Something that we can rely on over and over again. Matthew Murray was an officer of the US Navy. Over the course of his lifetime, he discovered that the oceans had currents. He, the ocean, they knew that the ocean had currents before he discovered them. But what he discovered and calculated was the exact paths in which the oceans, currents of the oceans traveled. He wrote the first books on oceanographic physics. And he is known as the father of modern navigation. Now, how did he discover this? Well, it's interesting to note that he discovered this from the Bible. Here is a tribute to Matthew Murray in his native state of Virginia. And we'll read it from about halfway through where it says, Every mariner for countless ages, as he takes his chart to shape his course across the seas, will think of thee. His inspiration, holy writ, Psalms 8 and 107, verses 8, 16 and 24, and Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 8. That is written on the tribute to Matthew Murray. He found... He found his inspiration from reading from the Bible. Now, what does Psalm 8 say that he chose that verse in particular? Psalm 8 says, Thou madest him, that is man, to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. That was his inspiration to have a look at what were these paths of the sea and to chart them all. And there we have a chart of all the ocean currents as we call them today. And that was done by that officer, Matthew Murray, and his inspiration, as we said, was Psalm 8, verse 3 to 8. And Psalm 8 was penned around a thousand years before Jesus Christ about 3,000 years from our time. The Great Stink was an event in London in 1858. It was caused by the dumping of untreated human waste into the Thames River. This was also the source of drinking water by many in London. Between 1831 and 1854, some 31,000 411 people died of cholera. A man named Joseph, Joseph Bazalgette designed and built an underground sewer system to solve this problem. And incredibly, that system is still in operation today. If they had simply read their Bible, they would have found that God had already told man what to do with his waste. God certainly doesn't say, dump it in your drinking water. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, he says, Thou shalt have a place also without the camp, not in the middle of your city, without your camp, whither thou shalt go forth abroad. Thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon. 
and it shall be when thou shalt ease thyself abroad, thou shalt dig therewith, shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. That was written by God some 3,500 years ago. And he told us that our waste needs to be buried, not dumped in the middle of the city and certainly not dumped. So again, we see that what God has written in the Bible has shown to be the case. We, of course, now treat our waste and we either dumped in the sea or it is buried itself. So what else can we have a look at to see what the Bible says and if we can confirm that what it is saying is actually true? But I'd like to have a look at the Bible, archaeology and Jesus himself. Now, the Bible has many accounts of the life of Jesus. It tells us of his birth, his works, teachings and death, and his resurrection to life. But was he real? Does he only exist as a story in the Bible? Is there any evidence other than the Bible that speaks of Jesus? Well, yes, there is. Jewish historian Josephus wrote about the Jewish people in 93 AD. It's thought that Josephus was born after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, around 37 AD, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is believed to be around 33 AD. Josephus was a well-connected aristocrat and a military leader in Palestine who served as a commander in Galilee during the first Jewish revolt against Rome in 70 AD. He was not a follower of Jesus, but he would have been around the early Christians, the early believers of Jesus at the time. And he recounts an unlawful execution and identifies the victim as James, brother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. And that backs up exactly what the Bible records for us. Matthew 13, verse 55 and 56 Jesus was out preaching that people said concerning him, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? In 116 AD, a Roman senator and historian, Cornelius, Tatticus wrote a history of the Roman Empire called the Annals of Imperial Rome. Now, it is stated when Tacitus wrote history, if he considered the information unreliable, he wrote some indication of that for his readers. There is no indication when he wrote about Jesus Christ that he believed that that information was considered unreliable. There is no notation in his record. Tacitus did not have any Christian bias. In fact, he was disdainful of Christians and their beliefs. When relating of the great fire of Rome, Tacitus says that the Roman Emperor Nero falsely blamed the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procreator of Judea 
in the reign of Tiberius. Now this matches exactly as the gospel records tell us. In Luke 3 and verse 1 it says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of Etruria and of the region of Trachonitis, Lysanias the tetrarch of Abilene. So it shows there in the Bible that Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. He's also called the co-creator. Uh, the same idea, different titles of the same man. And Tacitus says that he was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Well, the Bible tells us exactly the same. Towards the end of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23, it says this concerning Jesus Christ. And they, that was the nation of Israel, were instant in, with loud voices, requiring that he, Jesus, might be crucified. And the voices of them and the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he lived, delivered Jesus their will. And we know Jesus was crucified by the Romans at the insistence of the Jewish nations. And he was crucified with the authority of Pontius Pilate. The Roman governor Pliny the Younger wrote to Emperor Trajan that early Christians would sing hymns to Christ as to a god. The Roman historian Sinutius states that Emperor Claudius had expelled Jews from Rome who were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Christus. So there's no doubt that Jesus Christ is historical fact we have him written for us in the bible and we have references to him by works outside of the bible by people who were not early christians who did not believe in god who did not believe in jesus christ were opposed to the teachings that jesus christ came and his early apostles and followers thought at that time but what about internal evidence what do we find actually written in the Bible that we can verify that shows us that the Bible is an accurate book? Well, let's have a look at briefly at some Bible prophecies concerning Jesus. It says in Genesis 3 verse 15 that Jesus must be the seed of Eve and that he would bruise or crush the serpent's head. Now in Galatians 4 verse 4 and in 1 John 3 verse 8, we see that that was fulfilled. We're not going to turn up any of these quotes. You can have a look at them if you want to drop them down in your own time. We're just showing to you quickly a wide range of things that we can check and compare to show that the Bible is true and accurate. It says Jesus must be the seed of Abraham and he must be the seed of Isaac and he must be the seed of Jacob. And we see that in Matthew 1, all of those things are recorded in the genealogies of Jesus Christ. He was, in fact, in the lineage of those three men. This he must be a descendant of Judah. And again, in Matthew 1, verse 2 to 3, we see in the lineage of Jesus that he was of the seed of Judah. 
says he must be a descendant of King David. And again, in Matthew 1, verse 1 to 6, and in Acts and in Romans, we see that he is called a descendant of David. And in the lineage, David appears in the lineage of Jesus Christ. He says he must be the son of God. And in Matthew 3, verse 17, and Luke 1, verse 32, that Jesus Christ is and will be the son of God. And it says he would have the name of God applied to him. And in Matthew 1, verse 23, we say that Jesus was called Emmanuel, which is God with us. It says he would be born of a virgin. He would come 483 years after Artaxerxes commands Jerusalem to be rebuilt. He would be born in Bethlehem in Judah, and he would be pre preceded by one who would announce him. And we see in the quotes opposite that in Matthew 1, verse 18, and others, Matthew 2, verse 1, and uh, Matthew 3, verse 1 to 3, that all those were fulfilled. Matthew 3, verse 1 to 3 tells us that John the Baptist was the one who came to announce his coming. And they're just a few of prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. We could go on with another 40 more of these prophecies, prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled quite clearly in the New Testament. What about other internal evidence? Well, we see that the Bible is an honest book. It describes events even when that event would discredit the veracity of the event. Now, the New Testament times, the role of women was a subordinate one. Their testimony did not hold in the court of law. If you want a story to be credible, you do not have it told by a woman. Now, case in point, we see in the Bible two events that happened. Disciples, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Mary and some of the other women came back and told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. They did not believe her account or the other women. Now, the apostle Peter was arrested and thrown into prison, and the believers gathered together to pray for his release. And when he was released and knocked on the door, they did not believe that the doorkeeper wrote her when she said he was at the door. They said, no, no, it's not true. Now, these were events that were told by women. And at that time, women were not credible in their information. Now, the most crucial event in the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first people to witness that event not men, but women. All four gospel records tells us that women were the first to witness the risen Christ. Now, why, if a woman's opinion was not credible, why would all four gospel records make mention that Jesus appeared to women and women told the rest of the believers that Jesus Christ was raised? Their account was not credible. Surely you would collude to say, no, he rose and spoke to his disciples first, to men first, because their witnesses is credible. No, all four gospel records state the witnesses were women. They do that because the gospel records are true. And the gospel writers are only interested in telling the truth, not interested in telling politically correct information.
And so just from those couple of instances there, we can see from internal evidence that the Bible is a credible book. And it's not a hoax or a fairy tale made up or a big story made by people to suck people into a religion. It is a, tr a true and credible book. So with all that in mind, what else does the Bible tell us? The Bible provides a hope. It tells us that Jesus Christ will return to this earth. And in Acts 1 verses 1, 10 to 11, it says this, And while they, that is Jesus' disciples, looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And the disciples saw him go physically and literally into heaven. And so people will see him physically and literally return to this earth. He won't invisibly return. He won't return to be in your heart. He will physically return to this earth. The Bible also says that God, through Jesus Christ, will establish a kingdom on this earth. In Daniel 2 and verse 44, it says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. It shall stand forever. If we turn to the last book of the Bible, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so we look forward to that hope that the Bible gives to us. Through Jesus Christ, God will establish a kingdom on this earth. There won't be any other kingdoms and other rulers ruling. Jesus Christ will be the one ruler over all this world and there will be one kingdom established on this world and the bible also tells us that there's coming a time where there will be peace and happiness justice and disease-free life in isaiah and a prophecy concerning the time after jesus christ returns to this earth it says then the eyes of the blind shall be opened the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. No more will we have the fears of the coronavirus or any other diseases like we have. We will live a peaceful, happy, and disease-free life. And quotes like Revelation 21 and Amos 9, Psalm 72 and Isaiah 65 all tell us the same thing and give us that hope of a greater time to come. Now, this is just a small taste of what the Bible provides us as a hope. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that the Bible is true because of archaeology, because of science, because of archaeology and Jesus, concerning prophecies concerning Jesus and internal Bible evidence. So when the Bible gives us its consistent message, that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation, that sin entered a very good world. 
but there's a need of every human to be reconciled to God. That redemption to God is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in a belief in the gospel message that Jesus teached and the baptism into his sin-covering name and to live a, a way of life that God wants us to live. We believe what it says because we know that it is God's word and it is completely accurate. And that gives us a great deal of confidence and comfort, not only for what we're experiencing now, but for all of our lives. You too can share in that hope if you want. God has offered that hope to all who want to accept what God requires us to do. Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. And that is what we will be discussing next week, God willing. So then, read your Bible. It does contain answers to life's problems and gives us hope of a better future. One we believe will not be far away. So thank you for your time and stay safe.